This podcast is brought to you by Keiko New Energy, one of the top manufacturers of solar inverters in the world with operations in 16 countries. Keiko has been making solar inverters since 1999 and offers products for every size installation. To find out more, visit keikonewenergy.com. For the week of February 26th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. In our program this week, what should a Republican climate and clean energy plan look like? Former South Carolina congressman and free market climate champion Bob Inglis joins us to lay it out. Then it is earnings season, and we'll peek at the performance of a few leading solar companies. Lastly, we'll talk about how race is becoming a factor in the rhetorical skirmishes over distributed energy, and we'll also uh, talk about some trends in solar jobs while we're at it. Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton are here with me every step of the way. Jigger's a clean tech investor based in New York City. How are you this week? I'm great. I, uh, it, it was a very energizing week. In what way? I was in Minnesota, and... It is just amazing to see that they already have 400 megawatts of community solar garden applications, and Excel is just beside themselves because they know that this has so much public support, but they don't want to do that much solar. Well, to be fair, Excel has come out publicly supportive of a lot of solar. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's an exciting week. Absolutely. Well, certainly uh, the community solar program there in Minnesota took a lot of people by surprise. They were way oversubscribed. So, Jigger, I was watching Citizen Four last night, the Academy Award-winning documentary about NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden, and it reminded me how much information the NSA was getting over big internet companies, including Skype. And we, of course, record this show over Skype. And I thought, gosh, the administration has changed its tune on a lot of clean tech stuff over the last couple of years since we've been doing this show. I wonder if they're tapping in to this podcast and kind of sending on your criticisms to the administration. I'm sure there's a dedicated person. (laughs) In Washington with me, it's Catherine Hamilton, the founder of 38 North Solutions. How are you, Catherine? I'm doing great. I would I would love to know, you know, who has to listen to all the stuff that ends on the cutting ends up on the cutting room floor, Stephen. That's me. And I don't <laughs> work for the NSA. So let's turn to our guest, who has spent a lot of time inside Washington over his career. It is former South Carolina representative Bob Inglis, who served for twelve years in the House. Mr. Inglis is one of the few outspoken advocates of climate action in the Republican Party today, and it's uh, one of the reasons why the Tea Party organized against him in the 2010 elections. In 2012, after leaving office, Mr. Inglis started the Energy and Enterprise Initiative at George Mason University in order to uh, push conservative solutions for transitioning America's energy system, and we're going to talk about what some of those are today. Bob, thanks for being on the show. Welcome. Thank you, Stephen. Great to be with you. So I want to set the stage for people and talk about how you transitioned out of office. Um, I I think it'd be helpful to talk about what happened in 2010. So the American Conservative Union gave you a lifetime rating of 93%, a very high rating. But you were targeted by the Tea Party for your criticisms of the conspiratorial, hyperbolic wing of the party and for your stance on climate issues. What happened there and what role did climate play in all of that? 
Yes, I like I like the way you put that, Stephen. Transitioned out of it's more like I got tossed out. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was it was it was a rather abrupt transition. I will tell you that. Um, so uh, what happened is I think that you can uh, you can see support for climate action on climate change in the polling numbers that I got. Okay, so let's see. Back in 2004, when I was running again, I'd been in Congress six years. I I was out six years doing commercial real estate law. Then I came back to run again in 2004. I had a primary and uh, we were uh, with some um, a very capable opponent, one not so uh, so so uh, such a fulsome challenge. But they split 15% of the vote and we got 85% of the vote. Um, and I had uh, said to the district, uh, probably the reddest district in the reddest state of the nation, that I was going to be singularly focused on energy security. And I was saying that climate change is real and um, let's do something about it. Um, and that was okay with the district. Um, and then um, 06 is still okay. 08, Thank goodness the Republican primary was in June before the collapse of the financial system. Um, I had a primary opponent that year who called me the Al Gore of the Republican Party. Uh, he did not mean that as a compliment. Um, <laughs> and uh, so then we knew the 10 cycle would be difficult. Um, um, and it turned out to be quite difficult. I, I, I got only 29% of the vote in a Republican runoff. Um, in June of 2010. So from 85 to 29. Um, and I would I would suggest that that's the same trajectory of um, Republican acceptance of the need for action on climate. 04 is really pretty high. The economy was good. People were thinking longer term. Uh, they could focus on issues like climate change. But then came the Great Recession. And uh, it was a triage situation, you know, um, constituents are worried about their jobs, their, their mortgages, their home values. Um, and climate change seems something that you could worry about much later. So was that it? It was really the economic factors you think drove that change? Or do you think there was also a reaction to the Obama administration putting a lot of its weight behind this as well? And the, the natural uh, political blowback to that? Yeah, it's a combination of those things, right? It's um, I think the major factor is the Great Recession. But if you if you think about this from a conservative's perspective, um, here's what was happening: in 2008, the wheels were coming off the financial system. Um, uh, you know, maybe the church had long ago failed us, government had failed us, um, uh, but now we uh, came to doubt another institution, the banking system, um, and so. In the midst of that, a community organizer gets elected president, um, completely untrusted hands at the uh, untested hands at the wheel, um, and um, he uh, then sets about to nationalize, from a conservative's perspective, one seventh of the American economy uh, in the form of uh, health care. Now, if he were on with this right now, he'd say, "Bob, that was specifically what I was not doing." But uh, follow me here. This is what conservatives were feeling and thinking is that this man, this new president, is taking over one-seventh of the American economy. And besides that, he wants to regulate our very breath in the form of something called cap and tax. Um, so in the midst of all that, yeah, they were uh, they were thinking, they, they were, stop, we want to get off of this train. Um, and so 
um, that's where uh, I obviously was in a bad position of of having, uh, even though I voted against cap and trade, uh, saying that it was hopelessly complicated, embarrassing the free allocations of the well-connected, um, would have decimated American manufacturing, and was a massive tax increase. For all those reasons, I voted against it. But I proposed an alternative, um, and that alternative is what stuck in the craw of many constituents. So explain that alternative and explain some of your other positions here uh, and, and what you're advocating. So, you know, your, your organization describes the mission this way, to fight against entrenched interests and big government inertia to build an accountable free enterprise system in the energy sector. And you also talk about energy liberty as well. What does that actually mean for the real policy proposals that you put out there? Yeah, so what we're, what we're for is uh, what economists would call a revenue-neutral, border-adjustable carbon tax. But uh, note to self, do not say that in front of an audience <laughs> in a Republican primary, uh, because uh, fellow conservatives break out in hives at the mention of the word carbon and go into anaphylactic shock at the word tax. And so you want to avoid that reaction by by speaking of it probably as a 100% returnable emissions tax. We admit it's a tax. We want the government to step in here and attach all costs to all fuels. We also want to eliminate all subsidies for all fuels. Because if you do that, then uh, consumers in the liberty of enlightened self-interest will adjust their consumption based on those price signals. Um, and then the free enterprise system can step in and deliver all kinds of innovation. Um, Bob, you sound you are so logical, and this whole enlightened self-interest thing sounds wonderful until you go actually go up to the hill and start talking to people. And <laughs> you see uh, that I was up there today on the House side, and uh, one of the key staffers said to me that they had never, ever seen – the amount of funding that is now being poured into the pockets of the GOP and others by the Koch brothers. And it's, you know, talk about an entrenched interest. This is like absolute incumbent interest and where, you know, a Tea Party in in a district who has a lot of solar interest, a Tea Party rep might say, oh, yeah, I really care about solar. Once they get to Congress, it completely changes because they have to get reelected. And who's going to fund the reelection campaign? So how do we break that cycle? How do we stop that? I can't imagine that the clean energy industry has as much funding as the Koch brothers. But how do we deal with this? You know, it is it is true that campaign cash does affect the process. Um, but it, there's something... Uh, more powerful than campaign cash, though, and that is really just this sense of uh, tying in with people's values and what really matters to them. I think that that is, again, campaign cash does really matter. Um, it's also that they're afraid of being shut out of a community that's valuable to them. They, they want to be part of a tribe that says, this is what we believe. And um, it's a tribe that, um, that, that, that uh, right now, up until now, has not been able to see that maybe the biggest subsidy of them all is being able to dump into the trash dump of the sky for free. You know, it's bigger than the electric car credit. It's bigger than the production tax credit for wind. It's bigger than... Um, then uh, the, the tax credits and uh, other advantages that go to oil and gas. In other words, 
eliminate yes, eliminate all those subsidies, and and that's all that that all fits with what that the orthodoxy of that tribe um, that, that the tribe subscribes to. But the thing that's a little bit hard at this point is to show them. Uh, but I believe it can be shown to them that don't you also believe in accountability? And don't you believe that if you got a coal-fired plant and it's pumping up stuff out of that stack, shouldn't they be responsible for that? And and don't we believe as a real basic element of our political and even moral philosophy that human beings are responsible moral actors and you've got to be responsible for the things you do. Um, and so, so it, yes, it is the fear maybe of losing campaign cash, but it's also the fear of being ostracized and cut off from a community that matters to you because none of us want to be the lone wolf. Bob, can I, I want to take this in a slightly different direction. I, um, you know, met you uh, with Reed Dutchin and his group, and and I I just wanted to um, talk to you a little bit more about the demand side. I think one of the big challenges the Republicans that I talk to seem to have here is that that if a carbon tax were to be applied, they're not sure that the market would actually respond. They're worried that their constituents would just pay a higher price because when you look at the history of energy efficiency or even solar, you know, I mean, I'm reminded by the sort of the Geico ad where, you know, today they say, you know, did you know that you could save 15% or more on your car insurance? And people are like, everyone knows that. But in fact, there's a lot of people who don't know that no money down solar exists. And there's a lot of people who don't know that their utility has been providing rebates for energy efficiency upgrades for your home for 20 years. And so I think a lot of folks are worried that if this price signal is applied and no one shows up to the party, then are they going to get voted out of office? You know, if, if the price signal is um, is healthy enough, of course, uh, we, we, I think we'll get the message. Um, but, you know, I think at this point it has been, um, what, what you just said is true, but it's true for a different reason. It has to do with that cultural marketing, I think. Once once it becomes um, the, 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 the thing where people realize that they do have a financial interest and that it is consistent with what, they, who they want to be, that it doesn't just say that you're a greenie a tree hugger, but it says that you are, you're a smart person, that you, you're somebody who says, you know, solar efficiency has gone up um, significantly, and uh, now it really makes sense to put one of those systems on your roof, um, particularly if you do get that little nudge from, from the uh, price signal. I, I do agree that it's not going to be a huge nudge. You know, if we're talking a $25 per ton price on carbon dioxide, it's 25 cents per gallon of gasoline, and it's one to two cents per kilowatt hour, um, depending on where you are. If you're Indiana, you're on the high end of that range. If you're South Carolina, you're probably middling because 50% of our power is nuclear. So um, just depends on where you are, but it is a relatively small uh, price signal. But then you, you add to it things like um, the work of uh, companies like O-Power to show us how we're doing compared to the Joneses next door. Apparently, that really moves us um, because we, we want to keep up with the Joneses. And we see from the O-Power report that we're one of the least efficient houses on the street. 
we 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 get get our get our act together and we start to we start changing the way we get we get energy and, and the way we use energy they're trying to figure out now tax reform again there's an exercise and it seems like there's some appetite on both sides of the aisle for that in different very different ways in the house and senate but um chairman Bacchus, um before he went to be ambassador to china had released a sort of technology neutral tax credit that was based on reduction in carbon that would look at all different technologies and um allow for tax credits in a technology neutral way what do you think about an approach like that it, there, there's some complexity there that I wish we could avoid, um, uh, but that, that's the uh, that's where we we think that um, uh, an upstream application uh, at the mine um, and at the pipeline, uh, an application of a carbon tax there is administratively quite simple, and then um, it sends an effective price signal depending on the prices we were discussing earlier, how much uh, price you put on uh, the uh, CO2. What, what, what I'd be hoping for is, is more administrative simplicity than, um, than the proposal you were just describing. Can I um, ask you a different question once more on the local stuff? I mean, we've always sort of like looked at the Republicans in general as different at the local level versus at the national level just because of the dynamic. Um, and I'm just wondering whether you think that there's some real leadership on pricing carbon and externalities and other things at the local level that you're seeing out of Republican administrations. Well, it's, it's harder on the local level, of course, because what you have is uh, districts that are drawn to be uh, bright red or that have self-sorted into bright red districts. And, of course, the same is true. They're bright blue districts for the same reasons. And so a local member of Congress, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be, in some cases, harder for them. But it's, it is also true that in 2016, the Senate electoral map looks quite different than the Senate electoral map in 2014. In 14, the races were in places like North Carolina and Georgia. In 2016, the races are going to be in New Hampshire and Ohio and Arizona, um, and Pennsylvania. And those are very different states uh, where the grumpy old party needs to become the grand opportunity party. Showing that we don't reject uh, the science is important to attracting those millennials and the independents um, to come join that grand opportunity party and not reject the grumpy old party. Bob Inglis is a former congressman from South Carolina and the executive director of the Energy and Enterprise Initiative. He joined us from his home in South Carolina. Bob, thanks so much. Great to be with you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bob. Thanks. Good to talk with you all. It's time to talk about our podcast sponsor for a moment, Keiko New Energy. Founded in 1914, Keiko is a German company with a long history of technological innovation. In the 1950s, Keiko started producing electromechanical choppers, devices that convert low-voltage DC current into high voltage. These were the precursors to today's inverters. And in 1999, seeing the early potential of the modern solar industry, a team of engineers at Keiko formed Keiko New Energy and began producing products for PV. The company now has 850 employees working all over the world, and has applied its German engineering prowess to inverters of every type. For more information on Keiko's inverters, including the new TL1 series, head on over to keiko-newenergy.com.
Com. All right, let's move on to earnings season. In the last week or so, we've gotten updates from Solar City, Sun Edison, Sun Power, First Solar, and Enphase. We've also got a big new Yield Co. announcement, uh, an IPO filing from Solar Edge, and another massive tax equity fund just announced this morning from Solar City. I don't think we're going to get into all of these, but listeners have asked us to weigh in. First, let's talk about the Joint Yield Co planned by First Solar and Sun Power. The two companies say they want to combine project pipelines for this new public vehicle, which which could help them feed the beast, so to speak, uh, f- with more projects, because there certainly is a high demand to keep their uh, portfolios of projects high through these yield co's. Jager, why would these two companies want to create a joint yield co? In my opinion, yeah, because Total is basically sending the signal that they want First Solar to acquire SunPower. I mean, there's really no reason for them to join up, right? Basically, they're showing weakness. They're saying that neither one of their companies can do it on their own when Sun Edison has done it on their own. And Solar City is basically doing their own securitizations on their own. So why would the two of these guys have to partner up? It it seems like a weak move. Initial analysis has been around uh, just greater deal flow because there's obviously through a yield co, you have a demand for a robust portfolio of projects and they balance each other out. Uh, First Solar would, of course, get access to SunPower's residential portfolio and SunPower would expand its utility portfolio further. You think it's much deeper than that then? Yeah, because I think Total is the one leading this charge. I I know the SunPower people really well. Uh I am 100% sure that they would have never agreed to partner with First Solar or anybody else for that matter. They're just too proud to do it. And I think Total forced them to do it. It's, it's, you know, obviously I have nothing but speculation here. I'm not an insider in either one of these companies, but I just think that, I mean, you can imagine, right? Think about being in the boardroom of SunPower or First Solar and you're saying, why don't we just do this on our own? And they're saying, well, we just don't think that we have enough cash flow for distribution to be able to go public ourselves. That seems pretty weak, right? I mean, you wouldn't. I mean, these guys are generally arch enemies, right? Why would they partner? They 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 compete actively against each other on utility scale deals. So, what do all these announcements do to the master limited partnership play that seemed really strong last year, but now is it weaker, Jigger? Well, the big news on the MLP front is the failed um, IPO of Solwind. That's right. So Solwind was trying to go public, and then February 13th, they um, pulled their IPO. And, of course, this is 40 North, which is a very, very wealthy family who owns uh, GAF Roofing. Um, so they can you know, sort of hold on to the assets and try to go public in the future. But, and that was a cash for distribution um, issue, right? No, I think it was an MLP issue. I honestly think that these guys really thought that they could go public without explaining to people exactly how their really complicated legal structure um, that was you know, blessed by two major law firms um, would be able to do an MLP without legislative fixes. And they refused to basically share their intellectual property, basically the tax opinion that they got from the law firms, with the investors. So the investors were like, so we just have to trust you? Like, we actually need to read this and have our lawyers review it. And they said, no, you just got to trust us. And so so I think it really set back the MLP thing. And, you know, my my hope for the MLP thing is that basically that SIA trades the extension of the 30% tax credit for MLP and read status at the end of 2016. All right, well, let's talk about uh, Sun Edison, your former company. Of course, they've got their Yield Co. Terraform Power, which uh, reported fourth quarter 2014 net sales of just over $42 million. Uh, the company itself um, expanded its portfolio by 94% uh, 
uh, over the last year, but it also saw a loss of $43 million, hasn't shown a profit since 2011. Um, Sun Edison itself, beyond the Yield Co., the profitability issue, is that a big deal, Jigger? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I've certainly said this before. I mean, I think Sun Edison has too many employees. Um, I think they've got divisions in residential and divisions in storage, and I, I don't see why they don't focus entirely on commercial, industrial, and utility where they're the strongest. But I think that one of the things I think investors have a really hard time understanding in this space is that for companies like Sun Edison, as long as you're growing at 100% a year, there's no chance that you're going to be profitable, right? Because the only way to grow 100% a year is to hire a bunch of people in June for the next year because it takes you six months to train people. And so you're always holding on to too much staff, um, to be able to grow your business. Solar City is the same. So the way that these businesses work is at the time at which their growth rate goes down to 10% a year, which is way more normal, uh, then they're throwing off a lot of cash because they're no longer having to hire more people for the next year. But you know, in the solar industry, even though Sun Edison's at $3, 4000000000 billion worth of sales per year, um, they're still growing at 50 to 100% a year. So even though they're a big company, their growth rates are still phenomenal. Yeah. And of course, they had that big acquisition of First Wind. It added uh, a few gigawatts of projects to its pipeline. They want to get into wind more aggressively. They want to expand into international markets. And they've been talking about potentially acquiring hydroelectric projects, maybe biomass projects, uh, all sorts of distributed energy projects to push into Terraform. What do you think about that expansion? Is that good for Sun Edison? Do you think that that branch out? I mean, you said that you think they should just focus on commercial, industrial, utility, solar, but they are basically going in the opposite direction. Well, so I don't have a problem with them necessarily acquiring other assets that are performing, like First Wind, um, because that's really just an M&A transaction, and then then they do more large-scale projects. I think the problem I have is I think that the skills that they need to do residential solar are vastly different than the skills that they need to do large-scale solar. And you see that with Solar City. That's why Solar City, I think, has been very cautious about getting into larger-scale projects. But I, but I do think that you know the the expansion into these other technologies really comes from this insatiable pressure around feeding the beast. I mean, if, if Terraform doesn't continue to grow at lightning speed, they are never, ever going to be able to maintain that 3% dividend yield. I mean, Terraform is literally on a tightrope. When you look at where their stock has to go, um, they have to walk this tightrope and achieve some extraordinary growth rates or else um, the whole thing falls apart. I mean, if their if they're, stock price falls and the dividend yield goes up to 7%, they're completely uncompetitive in the solar space. I think that's the generally accepted assessment of the potential first solar sun power yield co as well, that just will have a greater volume of projects and can ensure those dividends. One thing I wanted to just jump in on is, um, you know, one of my clients actually uh, is First Wind, now Sun Edison on the utility scale side. I was working on wind, now it's utility scale. And one of the things that was done in that move is it's not just assets, but it's it's not just physical project assets. It's people assets. So it's talent. And I think that in that merger, you got the talent from First Wind that's going to help them a lot in developing their utility scale side and on the TERP side. Yeah. I mean, in, in fact, I met some of them yesterday at this um, or Tuesday in, in this Eradication of Darkness um, event that Sun Edison held in New York. And 
the first one guys are already unlocking a bunch of wind in India for Sun Edison. All right, last one. Solar City's Q4 results again not profitable, as you said. They've, you know, they're seeing 120 percent growth rates, so you can't be profitable at that speed. Solar City says it will plan to hit a gigawatt of installations this year. Wants to get to a million customers by 2018. Are they on a path to make that happen? You think? Well, I think Solar City's had a tough time maintaining their growth. I mean, I think a lot of their growth has come from acquisitions of other companies as opposed to just doing it internally. I mean, there's a company that I'm advising now that Solar City just gave a $600,000 advance to because it, this company has a a really, you know, a good uh, platform for lead generation. And so I think Solar City is, you know, finding it really really hard to maintain this growth rate through organic growth and they they really think they have to actually buy companies I think with and the good thing is they've got a pretty high stock price and so I think they can do that. I think the the bigger the bigger, you know, news for me was that they believe that their unit cost went down by almost 20% to $2.09 a watt even with flat module prices. Yeah, which I think is absolutely phenomenal and it's what I've been saying for a long time around the ITC. I mean, I think when you see what's going on in the UK and in Germany, when they dropped incentive programs, the solar industry magically figured out how to be more efficient. And I think Solar City is doing the same thing because I think they see the writing on the wall and that the the ITC is going to be really hard to extend at the end of 2016. Yeah, I had that in my notes here as one of the most important stats to draw out. Very good point. All right, let's move on now. Minority groups are increasingly becoming a part of the conversation around distributed energy. And the Los Angeles Times reported earlier this month that a local Florida chapter of the NAACP and the National Black Caucus of State Legislators had come out in favor of solar fees, arguing that solar owners shouldn't push the cost of maintaining the grid back onto less wealthy communities, which are disproportionately minority communities. Meanwhile, the NAACP National Board of Directors this week approved a resolution calling for more solar, arguing that pollution from fossil fuels disproportionately impact minority communities. They didn't weigh in on the fees issue, but they instead called for, quote, fair, equitable, and non-regressive financing models to support solar inefficiency. So a lot of interpretation there. This loops into our previous discussion on the solar workforce where groups like Grid Alternatives are trying to open up jobs to more women, to blacks, to Hispanics, which are definitely underrepresented in the workforce. So I want to tie all this together because, Catherine, you hosted a panel in D.C. on the solar workforce. And I'm just curious if this race and income issue came up in the conversation. Well, the way it came up is that this initiative is called RISE, Realizing an Inclusive Solar Economy. Um, you know, we've talked about the solar jobs report um, that Andrea Lukey puts out every year that has a census of what the solar jobs are and watching the uptick for communities of color and women becoming involved in solar and those jobs increasing. And this really, the grid alternatives model really does a lot of job training and is very intentional about how they hire and the communities that they serve, which is a huge piece of all of this. So as you mentioned, the NAACP um, resolution really recognizes that these communities are adversely affected disproportionately by toxic facilities in their neighborhoods. And so there are a lot of different ways in which they can participate in transitioning this. They can participate by making their communities cleaner. And that is what Grid Alternatives does. They, they go into communities that are underserved to install 
solar on rooftops in those communities. They also engage the people who live in those communities to become part of the workforce. So if you have a house that's getting solar, you're going to be up on the roof helping to install that solar. But then there will also be a much larger sort of job initiative in that community to try to get more people involved. I think you, you know, not only do we have to be very intentional on the power production side, which is where NAACP is becoming very affirming in that way, uh, going against what Alec and the utilities have been saying in a very disingenuous way, which is, oh, you're hurting all the poor people. Well, they're saying, wait a second, we're actually already being much more hurt by Um, by fossil fuel generation that's in our communities. And so we want to not only change our communities, but we want to be part of that change and create jobs by doing that. But one could see how uh, minority groups could be compelled by this cost shifting issue. I mean, EEI can go in there and they probably make a pretty strong case from what I've been told from people who have been in conversations with the National Black Caucus, with um, members of Congress uh, they they respond to these arguments from EEI and from from other groups. Well, I think that Bob Inglis was really clear about the fact that you know these congressional members really do respond to these large groups and the money that they provide these these congressional members. But I think when you look at the national NAACP, one of the reasons why I think the solar industry has been really good at this stuff is you know Phil Radford, who used to be the head of Greenpeace has done a really good job of working together with Mike Brune as well as with Ben Jealous uh, before NAACP as well as the Communication Workers Union and others to help them understand exactly where all these issues are. And I think you see the fruits of that labor in the NAACP's refusal to go along with David Owens's, you know, talking points at EEI. You know, like it, just like Donald Sterling paid off some chapters in LA, there's certainly local chapters that can get um, then go a different direction because of donations from the utilities. But I think that this this overall argument is not really resonating because there's been decades of social justice issues that people have worked on for coal and for mountaintop removal and for, you know, the utility sector. So I think for utilities to think that they can actually bring in their silver tongue and, you know, immediately get everyone to jump on their side is ridiculous. Yeah, especially when the solar industry is hiring so many people. It's like 20% a year, year after year after year that they're increasing and hiring people. And they're and they're very they're being very very intentional about making sure that they hire within these communities so that they can they can actually get good workers and experienced workers and and a very diverse workforce which makes them much stronger. Yeah, but not diverse enough, which is why Sun Edison and Grid Alternatives are pouring money into this effort. And that's why I brought in the jobs picture here, because it's not enough to say, we'll deploy solar in your communities and we'll reduce air pollution. I think you need to have a local economic impact where people can see that they are benefiting from the jobs that are being created. And while solar is more diverse than other areas of the economy, it's still not diverse enough. So I think that to combat the rhetorical battle over cost shifting the program between Sun Edison and Grid, for example, is the key way that you get people feeling like they're invested in the transition. 
Yeah, we had on the panel, and and just to be completely transparent, I'm also the incoming president of the board of Grid Alternatives Mid Atlantic. So I'm working very closely hey, with um, Erica <laughs> with Erica Mackey and then Nicole Steele, who is the executive director for this region. Um, and they have this gentleman Salvador Torres, who was uh, a volunteer in um, California, and now he's going to be the solar installation supervisor in this part of the country. And he's just amazing, and he really brings that. Um, youthful and diverse view to the workforce that he just gets kids excited. And at this panel, there were a lot of people looking for jobs, young people. And and he said, come on, we will, we will train you. We'll get you ready for a solar job. And uh, it's pretty inspiring. And just to push back I, on you, Jigger, I don't think that we should sit here and automatically dismiss every argument that the utilities or the EEI makes. Long term, we absolutely need to Think about potential cost-shifting issues. Like, this is a real issue. We shouldn't just dismiss EEI as coming in here and only playing a political game. I mean, from their perspective, like, these are very legitimate. And I think that if you have policies that regressively impact people of color and uh, low-income communities, like, we should be upfront about those impacts. No, but those right. impacts I mean, but, don't actually I – mean, like, that don't – it doesn't affect them. I mean the, all the studies show that those people's bills go down no matter who has solar on the grid. Right, Jigger? Right. I mean the thing is, is like first of all, I'm the guy that's been pushing value of solar and has got 50 arrows in my back. So let's just like back off for a second. <laughs> second of all, like you know – second of all, like I think that the people that are actually poor are getting screwed by rate design from the last 15 years because of unnecessary transmission distribution upgrades that we could have done more cost-effectively with distributed generation like solar. And now we have a lot of studies that prove that we could have done it with solar energy efficiency, battery storage, and other technologies, that the utilities deliberately buried their head in the sand and decided to raise rates on everybody instead of actually pursuing lower-cost alternatives. Now they're coming back and saying, well, now that we've screwed you by raising rates by 50% since 2000, now we're looking to do things more cost effectively and oh by the way we're going to throw solar under the bus so like i just i just think we should be clear about this the other point i want to make here is that the naacp and others did not protest sun edison into doing a deal with grid alternatives they proactively did this and so yes. when you think about where the utilities are the utilities have diversity programs because people boycotted them for 20 years right sun edison and the rest of the solar industry is proactively trying to become more diverse and proactively offering a five million dollar partnership with grid alternatives without a Twitter sphere like going crazy against on Edison or other things. They're doing this because they're good corporate citizens. And because it helps their bottom line. These are good workers. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's why we have 10% veterans as well. But I just think that like, I'm just saying that like, you know, I don't think that we need to be pushed. I frankly think that the solar industry uh, chiefs are actually dragging the rest of us along into, you know, a more diverse and more inclusive work environment because they see it as good for their bottom line. All right, time to end the show and tell our listeners something they do not know. Catherine Hamilton, you go up first. Okay, great. I know that I live in a fairly uh, progressive community, but it is in the Commonwealth of Virginia. But um, this, just a few days ago, Arlington County residents decided to form a co-op to go solar. It's really exciting. Arlingtonians for Clean Environment and this initiative to rethink energy teamed up with the Virginia Solar United Neighborhoods um, to start to start co-ops that allow um, homeowners to actually get solar, uh, which has been something that's been hard to do in Virginia. Jigger, what do you got? 
So I have been following this study that came out from Agora, which is a German think tank that has really been, you know, very, very deep into the energy vende and and they their results are pretty damn astounding. I mean, they're basically saying that the cost of solar are getting so cheap in Germany and the UK that solar in both markets will be cost effective without any subsidies in any in any way that you calculate subsidies within the next six to ten years, which is really short, and that that price will be so low that it will be cheaper to meet the incremental energy needs of both the UK and Germany, who have big thermal loads, from solar than for introducing more oil and gas, which is the first time I had seen people really tie oil and gas into this. They're just saying that unconventional fuels are so expensive for these countries um, from Russia, from other places, et cetera, that in fact incremental solar power would be cheaper than than increasing the use of those fuels within six to ten years. Well, we got a lot of feedback, both positive and negative, on our last show with Alex Epstein on the moral case for fossil fuels. And after listening to it, I, my big regret was that I didn't push back on Alex's claims about the failure of climate models because that underpins a lot of his forward-looking views on fossil fuels. And and he, like a lot of other skeptics, says that the climate models themselves have been consistently proven wrong, and they didn't predict the recent 15-year slowdown in warming. And a new study out in Nature looks at all of these models underpinning the UN's projections for future warming, and it actually found that over the last 100 years, the models have not predicted warming, have not over-predicted warming, although they do sometimes miss the mark on short-term variations, the study found that the actual temperatures fell well within the predicted ranges. And so that's not to say that there isn't some uncertainty in the very long-term models, but it just shows that the observations of warming have consistently followed predictions. And I just wanted to mention that because the, the climate piece of last episode's conversation was one that I really felt needed to be addressed more. Um, so just wanted to bring that story up. And that is going to do it for us, folks. Thanks to everyone out there for listening and for subscribing to this show. If you're just stumbling across us for the first time, you're in luck. We've got 75 other episodes on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and our website, greentechmedia.com slash podcast. Subscribe to the show and get days' worth of content, if you can handle our voices for that long, I suppose. We are sponsored by Keiko New Energy. We are very thankful for their financial support. And we are produced by Green Tech Media, where you can find all your news needs on the global energy transformation. Uh, just a quick note, we will be off for a couple of weeks while I travel around South Africa. I've got some content planned for your listening pleasure, but the three of us will not be back until the week of March 16th. Jigger, we'll catch you then. Always a pleasure. See you later, Catherine. Yeah, enjoy. Maybe we'll have spring by then. <laughs> <laughs> With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. And we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next time.